So I ask if you will to turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Mark's Gospel. The fifth chapter of Mark's Gospel, the first 20 verses. We will be returning to Ephesians, I hope, the second week in August when everyone has returned from travels and we move on to chapter 4. But for today, Mark chapter 5, the first 20 verses. Will you pray with me before we read? We bow before you and reverence your name, Lord, and ask that the word will be faithfully expounded and that the Holy Spirit will open hearts and apply it in ways that that only you know are needed in the lives of your people, to strengthen those who are downcast and downhearted, to bring great joy in the knowledge that your kingdom is forever and that the prince of darkness grim, we needn't tremble for him nor his work. For the lost among us who do not know the Lord Jesus, that you would bring them out of darkness into light, just as you did the man in this text. And that we would understand that we are a part of something bigger than we are, that your church is to proclaim the gospel, and that your kingdom is forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark 5, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit." And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends 
and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The king has come with authority over wind and waves and even over the demonic realm. When Jesus came to this earth, assuming human nature to redeem us from our sins, he came to inaugurate his kingdom and there was an acceleration of demonic activity. This vivid incident demonstrates to us the truth of 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And deliverance from the forces of evil is still our great need today, for we are either members of the kingdom of darkness or members of the kingdom of light. It might not be demon possession, but we are members of one kingdom or the other. And Jesus came in order that he might destroy Satan's kingdom, and he is now building his own on the ruins of Satan's kingdom. We come to this vivid text, and the first thing we see is a man in total bondage. A man in total bondage. He was a man. He was not an animal, but he acted like an animal. He is God's image bearer, fallen. Now living among the tombs, living among the dead. How fallen is man that he can now even be possessed by demons. And he was a slave. This man was in complete darkness, dominated by unclean spirit, it says in the text, No self-control. Others could not control him. They attempted to bind him so that he would not harm himself. Undoubtedly, loved ones cared about him. They tried to bind him. And yet, with the strength of the demons within him, he broke his bonds. He was hopeless. He was helpless. He was bent on self-destruction. He cut himself, which is a possible indication of involvement in pagan worship, because that's what happened in pagan worship. He made his home, as we have said, in the tombs. And I ask you, could there be a sadder sight than this man found in this text? He also was a fierce character. Perhaps those who told about the man could point to the the fetters that were broken and to the bonds that he had snapped like thread. Perhaps they said, you you see these fetters all around? Well, we've tried to bind him. We've done the best we can, and and yet he's so supernaturally empowered by these demons and so strong, he simply snaps them like string. Verse 5 gives us some vivid details when it says, Night and day, continually then, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. Crying is the activity of the demons. We find it in chapter 126, 311, 926, the demons crying out, by which we should understand that through this men they were exemplifying wild, uncontrolled frenzy. And unhappily, the ESV translates this morning bruise, but really he was cutting himself. It uses kata with it, which means down. He was cutting himself down. So what you can imagine is that when Jesus saw this man, he was completely covered, undoubtedly, with scars, where he had taken stones and he he had cut his own body in his helplessness as he was in... Dwelt, imagine it, by demons. You know, sin always dehumanizes. Never an exception to that. 
whether it is the result of the fall and there is demon possession or whether it is in some other way, we think, oh, we'll just go our own way and our way will be good and our way will be, we'll just be true to ourselves. But mark it down. Anytime we are away from God, anytime we go our own way, sin always and ever dehumanizes. And we see this man dehumanized. This is a sight to be seen on various levels all around us. It doesn't have to be the fallen condition of demon possession. But all of us, apart from Christ, are dead in trespasses and sins. One need not be demon-possessed to be the devil's child. And when we read in verse 5, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. You see here Satan's agenda, don't you? Satan's agenda is to destroy and to distort and to disfigure all that it means that we are created in God's image. So Satan's agenda in this world is that in man's thinking, feeling, music, art, his work, his play, his philosophy, and in his relationships and within his inner being, to turn man, God's image bearer, into the image bearer of Satan's ugly, rebellious image. So I ask, is there hope? And the only hope that we sinners have is this. My friend, so bound are we by sin that we we cannot come to the Lord, but he must come to us. And so Jesus comes into this region of Decapolis. And the second thing we see is Jesus' authority over the demonic. Now, although the man runs to Jesus and falls on his knees, now why is that? Uh, Did he run and fall on his knees because the demons wanted to attempt to destroy and perhaps they were by his supernatural authority brought to their knees? Or is it because there's something irresistible about Jesus and the man runs to him? Or as R.T. France thinks, is there an element of conflict within, within the man himself between his own desire to meet Jesus and the reluctance of the resistant demons? In any case, the context makes it abundantly clear that this man is under the control of the demonic. And when he runs to Jesus, he falls upon his knees because the demonic is under the sovereign authority of Jesus. And this anticipates the day when the demonic host will kneel before the exalted Christ. And in verse 7, we are told... Crying out with a loud voice, he said, that is the chief demon, the lead one among them, said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demon, and it will become clear that we're dealing with many, raises his voice in self-defense. The demons know full well who Jesus is. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. They are fallen angels. They have memory of the glory of the Son who now has come into the world to accomplish redemption for sinners. And they are absolutely right. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. These demons stand before Jesus, Son of the Most High God. They are right, and Mark intends for you to adopt these demons' point of view. Only with this difference. Mark wants you to see, his whole gospel is about seeing, that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God, but he wants you to embrace him in faith. 
and entrust your life to him as your Lord, which the devils and demons and Satan himself will never do and can never do. Now, it's been suggested that in naming Jesus, the demons are vainly attempting to control Jesus, but if so, it is completely in vain, and they fear. I mean, look at that in verse 7. They are afraid. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. They fear because they know who Jesus is and why he has come. They know that the arrival of the kingdom of God means the beginning of the end of the world of darkness. They know that the kingdom has arrived in Jesus. The great drama of the history of the end has begun. They know their ultimate fate, and we read of that fate in many places in the Bible. For example, in Jude 6, we read, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains and gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. In Revelation, the 20th chapter When we hear of the judgment that is coming, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so in response of the demons, we see, and what they say to Jesus, do not torment me, we see the drama of the history of redemption And that day that is coming, Philippians 2.10, when at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth bend the knee to him. Verse 8 makes it plain that the demon knows that it must leave. This is a sign of the unbrokenness of the kingdom of God. Jesus has come. Everything is new. Things must change. Life must change. A new Lord reigns. The saving reign of the Lord has begun. His redeeming reign is here. And everything here is about the power of Jesus. Everything here is about the lordship of Christ. Well, listen. There are two kingdoms with two kings, one a dark realm, another of light, one with a malevolent master, another with a benevolent one, one who is out to destroy, one who saves and heals, one who hates, another who loves, and the call is to conversion, to deliverance from the kingdom of darkness to that of light, a transition from wrath to grace. Young people, you are baptized children. The mark of the king of the kingdom of light has been put upon you. You are not your own, and you are constantly called to faith in Christ in your homes and in your church. You are not free to live as you please. True freedom is living as he pleases. Let us search our hearts. If we are professing to be in the kingdom of light, not the kingdom of darkness, in the redeeming kingdom of Jesus and not the destroying kingdom of Satan, if we profess ourselves to be in his kingdom... Is it showing in where we put our minds, the affections of our hearts, the stuff we put on social media, the use of our tongues, the use of our money in our relationships? The king has come. He's building his kingdom on the ruins of Satan's kingdom, and he demands total loyalty. That's what we call discipleship. Is there something in your life that the king says to you even now, that must go and this must take its place? Life cannot be the same because the king has come, because Jesus is Lord, not over some narrow part of your religious life, 
not over Sunday morning when you're in worship. He is Lord over all of life. And then thirdly, we see Jesus' deliverance of the demon-possessed man. Verse 9, what is your name? And the demons answer, legion. Now why that answer? Why this response? A Roman legion could have 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. Was the demonic host attempting to evade giving a clear answer? Was it wishing to conceal its true name? I think the New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias is right when he says the demon did give its true name, soldier. What seems certain is that the man was tormented by a great host of demons who do so with the combined forces of a legion as if they were one. Our friend Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, Legion expresses the fact that the man has been used as an outpost of demonic activity in the world. Perhaps in this military language we are meant to catch the fact that Satan's opposition to the kingdom of God is not haphazard but ruthlessly well organized. I think he's right. The kingdom of darkness is marshaled for war against us. We are, as Christians, engaged in a stern conflict and shall be victorious. That stern conflict shows in our personal war against temptation and sin. It shows in our families. It shows in the church. It shows in how we, how we go to the world with the gospel. But we shall be victorious because Christ is greater, infinitely greater, than the enemy of our souls. And when Christ enters the field, the enemy trembles because Jesus is in sovereign control. He really is. Jesus is in sovereign control in Gaza this morning. Jesus is in sovereign control in Iraq this morning. It looks like chaos, humanly speaking it is, but God is working his purpose out All authority has been given into the hands of the mediator, and he is working his redemptive purpose and plan out in this world. Now, there were pigs in this area. This is a Gentile area, if that perplexes you. These were Gentiles. It was a Gentile area. Bertrand Russell argued in his essay on why I'm not a Christian One of his reasons was because of the destruction of the pigs in this passage. Bertrand Russell does not share uh, with uh, Mark his apparent lack of concern for the pigs. Jesus does not share Bertrand Russell's concern for the pigs. They are his, they are Jesus' pigs, and he must use them as he pleases They must serve his conquest of evil. And what excuses men will come up with for rebelling against Christ and losing their own souls. I can see it on the day of judgment. I'm not a Christian because I didn't like the way Jesus treated the pigs. That's how fallen we are. So why did the demons want to go into the pigs? They beg. Let us stay in this country and go into the pigs. Well, better there than hell. The time of the end has not yet come, but they know that the one with whom they're dealing has the right to judge them now, but also the cause, the cause in this area 
for Satan and his kingdom. They wanted to progress. They wanted to cause havoc in God's creation to raise the ire of the populace against Jesus. But let me stress that Satan has no power in Jesus' presence. They can only go when he says go. They can only do what he permits them to do. As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And they understand Jesus' mission. Anticipated here is the day in which they will be judged. I was talking with my wife about this last night. Talking about this passage and talking about these pigs. Verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Uh, Vicki, what do you think of that? Let's use our imaginations. She says, that's a lot of barbecue. You know, one morning I was going to Bradenton to, uh, to preach, early, early in the morning, and uh, I went down, you know this stretch when you go down through Mulberry and on the other side, early in the morning, there, well, I was the only car, there was no one there, no one. And then you get to that section there, these, these great trees and this narrow road and going over toward Parrish, and there on the side of the road were wild boar. Ugly, ferocious, digging in the dirt. I mean, right on the side of the road, a pile of them, a bunch of them. And man, I thought to myself, I'm glad I don't have car trouble. You know, change a tire, I couldn't get out of the car. And there was nobody around. So this isn't Wilbur. <laughs> All right? It's a picture of the judgment. <laughs> So I thought a lot about this, you know, our view of pigs, and I was remembering my grandmother. I have a vivid memory of this, my, my grandmother doing this little piggy with me. You know how it goes, this little piggy went to market, this little piggy stayed home, this little piggy had roast beef, this little piggy had none, and then there's the excruciatingly difficult part when she would take my little toe and her voice would go way up in a squeaky way, and she would say, and this little piggy cried wee, wee, wee all the way home. And I was doing that with Maggie the other day, one of our children. Well, these porkers are careening down the hill over the precipice, all of that, all of that porky flesh, all of that screeching and squealing, the dirt flying. You wouldn't have lived had you been in the way, undoubtedly. And they pour over the edge and they drown in the sea. Just as the day will come in which the demonic hosts will be thrown into hell forever. Here we have a picture, a portrait, a foretaste of the judgment 
when Jesus sends the devil and his hosts to eternal torment. And we will all say amen on that day. So why did Jesus allow the demons to go into the herd of swine? The main reason seems to be that Jesus is demonstrating the intention of the demons for the man that they possessed. The time for their ultimate destruction had not yet come, but allowing them to enter the swine shows beyond question that their design all along was the destruction of this man. And let me say, their purpose for men is not one bit different than the madness to which they drove the pigs. And undoubtedly, he would show a foretaste of the judgments on these malevolent spirits that would destroy God's image bearers. So we'd better come to grips with the fact that when we go our way, we are really going Satan's way, and that his way, his aim is to destroy. It always has been and will be. Satan's goal is to destroy God's creation, to obliterate the image of God, and that is what he attempts to do in inspiring wicked men to put Jesus on a cross, but all along God is in control and intended our redemption by it. But nothing can stop God's purpose to see his image and all creation completely restored. Notice the participles there in verse 15. There's the man now. The demons are gone, seated, clothed, restored. What a contrast. There he had been tearing his fetters apart, crying, living in the tombs, cutting himself. And now he is seated, he is clothed, he is restored. And Mark intends for us to see a picture of redemption, of conversion, of restoration. Previously, chains could not hold him. A dark master had chained his soul. But now he sits at rest. He had been naked. Now he is clothed. His humanity is restored. As Calvin put it, though we are not tormented by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. And I think it's a marvel. I think it is an absolute marvel for which we should worship God this morning, that our creator God is a recreative God that he recreates, that he restores creation and promises in consummation that we will have creation regained and more, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, lowercase g, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul then says, recreation is patterned after creation. The same God who said, let there be light and there was light. Via Heor now speaks into the lives of the darkened and he says, let there be light. Our God is the recreative God. There he is, clothed in his right mind, the text says. This madman, now clothed, seated at his right mind, and I know we're preaching Mark, not Matthew or Luke, but Luke adds in Luke eight thirty-five that he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
Pictured here is the beauty, the order, and the sanity of the end of the age that begins in the lives of all people who come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. You know, they'd given up on this man. They couldn't bind him. They couldn't help him. They had given up on him. But there is no one and there is no case that is beyond Jesus Christ. Nobody. Well, let's see, fourthly and briefly, the response of the townspeople. The herdsmen fled, we're told in verse 14, no wonder. They told it in the city and in the countryside. Folks came to Jesus. They saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Verse 16, those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They want him to go. They don't want him there. Why? I think a couple of reasons. One, this was a severe blow to their economy. A.T. Robertson, I think, is right when he says they cared more for hogs than for human souls, as often happens today. Jesus is fine as long as he doesn't mess with my business. Jesus is fine as long as he doesn't tell me how to live. Jesus is fine as as long as he doesn't claim my money or claim what is mine or, or claim how I'm to relate to people or... And in verse... 15, when we are told that they came and they saw this man and they were afraid, it seems to have been because of Jesus' disturbing presence. I hope he's a disturbing presence. You know, holiness both repels and attracts. It attracts those whom God is calling and repels those who feel better off without him. They're taking their point of departure from within themselves and from their own autonomous frame of reference. And I've told you what Minot says about that. There's no peace for the man who takes his point of departure from within himself. There is no peace for you if you are taking your point of departure from within yourself. You need to bow before the Lordship of Christ. That's the only place, the only person, the only way in which you will have peace. So they would rather have their pigs than Christ. Just as we sinners, apart from grace, would rather have our filthy pig-like choices rather than Jesus. And then see, fifthly, discipleship. The man now wants to go with Jesus, the text tells us. Jesus says, no, you stay. You have an opportunity right where you are to spread the good news and what a wonderful change has come over this man. It's truly marvelous, isn't it? And he now wants to be with Jesus and make Jesus known. So did you notice this was a missionary text? The foundation has now been laid for the gospel to be proclaimed in Decapolis to the Gentiles. Because this man is, as someone has said, Christ's curate in Decapolis. Who needed the message of Jesus more than those who wanted Jesus out of their lives? And we have a message to tell to people that don't want him. 
God has given us not a sword, but a towel, not political power, but a message. Rome was conquered by the proclamation, Jesus is Lord. And our weapon against all that would destroy God's creation and distort humanity against injustice and corruption is the Word of God and the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the opposite of what that man knew, the opposite of what the sinner knows within his heart. So let me ask you, where does your heart fit in this narrative? Do you fit the Gadarenes who wanted Jesus away from their lives? Or do you fit those who desire to tell the good news, to know Jesus, to proclaim his gospel, to live under his lordship? And we're told in verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis the ten cities, you see, Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. They were amazed. And it's an imperfect indicative, which means they kept on being amazed. So you see, people of God, Jesus has come to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness. From one perspective, the entire ministry of Jesus was an exorcism of the devil. Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. But having gone through this text, if our focus is on the demons at the end, we will have missed the whole point. Just as with Jesus stilling the sea, the question the text intends to raise is, who is this? Who is this that stills wind and waves? Who is this that can cast out demons? Who is this, as we saw last week, who has authority even over death and can raise Jairus' daughter? Notice the language of verses 19 and 20. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. So the man went away and began to tell Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. What Jesus did for the man, God did for the man because Jesus is God become man. And now he can show sovereign pity and mercy. Has he done that for you? And there are no limits Not just Jews, but here in Decapolis, Gentiles as well, because Jesus can go anywhere. He can do anything. He can save Jews. He can save even Gentiles. God can save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. He went to the cross for our sins, and there he bound the strong man. He bound Satan. And Jesus can free man from the possession of demons so that demons are dispossessed. Jesus can take you from the tombs. Jesus can raise the dead. Jesus can turn sinners into saints. And if you're among those that despair of salvation, others can be saved, but not me. My sins are too great. Then look at this man. Your sins, your bondage may be legion, but Jesus can as easily forgive a sinner as cast out these demons because he did the hard thing of going to the cross and purchasing sinners to himself and casting out the evil one. So there is more grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it, as says one of the Puritans. 
And I praise God this morning. I praise God that Jesus drowns pigs. Aren't you? That all through this room there are people for whom the Lord in sovereign pity has shown the liberating power of the kingdom of God. And you should know the good news and go tell it to others that the Lord has come and can do this for anyone. The kingdom has come because the king has come and he has come to destroy the work of the devil. God's people said, Amen. Amen.